we just praised the Lord Jesus and we acknowledged his wonderful redemptive work and his resurrection and that's what we're here for and so it's a wonderful thing to sing about our Lord and what he has done. We're beginning a three-week series on spiritual gifts. I hope that this will be something that will glorify God, that it will benefit and edify the church, and I pray that we can all learn together. Everybody likes to receive gifts. We've just come off of the holiday season, the Christmas season, where in all likelihood, uh, most everybody uh, gave and received gifts. And it's always a lot of fun. I enjoy especially watching the grandkids opening their gifts and just look at their faces, uh, see their eyes, see the joy, the laughter, uh, the satisfaction, all of those kinds of things that are associated with opening a gift. And we all like gifts. And sometimes gifts are surprising. Sometimes gifts are things that we really, really have wanted and longed for. Sometimes gifts are things that we really, really need. Uh, one of the gifts I got this year was a bunch of socks. And I think I rejoiced uh, more over the socks than anything else because <laughs> I needed them badly. <laughs> so uh, sometimes that brings joy to receiving a gift is when you get something that you really need. And so anyway, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. And uh, in doing so, I hope we can learn and grow together. COVID has, uh, in some respects, uh, inhibited uh, some of our plans, and we had hoped that uh, by now, in months that have already passed us, and then uh, in the near future, we had hoped to have some uh, maybe weekend studies or Friday night and Saturday morning uh, conferences or discussions or whatever you want to call them over various things where we could all discuss some things together. And that certainly is our plan going forward, uh, and that's one of the things that we want to do with spiritual gifts. Uh, so we're hoping very much that uh, in, in the near future anyway, uh, we will set aside a, a time and we will announce that and invite you and we can get together and have a good study and discussion on spiritual gifts and hopefully the things that we talk about today might uh, help you to file some thoughts or questions away and you can uh, uh, bring those up uh, at the appropriate time. So let's move right into it. I'm going to read Second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all to everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for, this common, uh, for the common good. Uh, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and on and on it goes and lists a number of spiritual gifts. 
The thing that I want us to notice in this section of Scripture is that there is a Trinitarian view here. He talks about different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. So there's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Then different kinds of services, but the same Lord. That's the Lord Jesus. Then he talks about different kinds of activities, and that, of course, is a reference to God the Father. I don't think the intent of Paul at this time was to differentiate and cause us to go into a long discussion of any differences between gifts, services, and activities. I think in some sense uh, there is a unity there, just different ways of describing the work of the Spirit. Uh, Just as the words Spirit, Lord, and God are all a reference to the one God and three persons. And so we don't want to get bogged down in that so much as we want to acknowledge that what is actually happening here is he is talking about the beauty of diversity in the body of Christ. And there is unity in diversity. The fact that we are all different, the fact that God has given the church different gifts to different people, And that sort of thing is something that we should honor and respect and appreciate and acknowledge and love one another for that. We should love each other because of the various gifts that we have. And the different gifts of everyone in the body of Christ are there for the glory of God and for the benefit of the church. And so it's important that we recognize this is the plan of God, this is the work of God, this is the work of the Spirit of God, and we want to not get caught up so much in that Paul is giving us a study of all the different gifts here, because I don't believe he is. He has something in mind that he's trying to get across to the church at Corinth, And he begins explaining all of this by pointing out the beauty in diversity within the body and that that is the plan of God and that is the gift of God. Just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. You see, what he's saying is that, in essence, the body of Christ, the church, is a reflection of the very nature of God. God himself is diverse. We may struggle sometimes grasping the full meaning of three persons in one, one God, three persons, the unity that exists there and the working of God himself, but that is the nature of God as explained in Scripture, whether or not we fully comprehend it, and he's using that, the diversity of the nature and character of God, to describe the church. And so that's the point of this section of Scripture. I want to go now to Ephesians 7, I mean 4, verse 7 and 8. Where the Bible says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then it goes on later to say, he gave gifts to men. Now, to expand on that a little bit later, he says, and he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists, the pastors and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The reason I wanted us to look at this passage of Scripture was to emphasize why there are spiritual gifts. Christ gave gifts to the church. So, anyone that takes a position, if you will, or argues to some uh, degree or extent based on their understanding of Scripture that there are no spiritual gifts in the church today need to go back to Ephesians chapter 4 and study this passage of Scripture. Because the Bible says clearly that Christ gave gifts to men. No question about that. The Bible says it explicitly and specifically that he gave us gifts. And then, of course, we find a twofold reason. One reason is so that the work of God can be carried on through his people. The work of ministry. So these different positions, roles, or people groups that he mentions there, the reason is so that they can work with, they can equip and train the body of Christ to do the work that God has called his church to do. So these gifts are there for that reason. And the church needs to be equipped. The church needs to be on that path to maturity. The church needs to do the work that God has called her to do. And that's the whole point of these gifts. And then he goes on to say, it's to bring us unto the fullness of Christ. The stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ likeness for each of us, but in a sense more succinctly and more importantly to the church. The church is to grow into the fullness of Christ. That's why we are called the body of Christ. Collectively, we are the body of Christ. And so the body of Christ should be like Christ. The body of Christ should mature into Christ-likeness, the fullness of Christ, if you will. And so the relevant passages on spiritual gifts in the New Testament that we look at and most everything we say today are going to be drawn from Romans 12, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, verses 8 through 11. I want to point out that when we talk about spiritual gifts, we're implicitly, if not directly, talking about the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself is a gift that we are given, a life-giving, God-empowering gift. And we're going to show some verses here in just a moment that express those sentiments to us. So think about this. 
You receive your human spirit at birth. You receive the Holy Spirit at your new birth or your rebirth. When you are born again, when you are born into the kingdom of God, when you uh, come to Christ. When you take on the Christ life, when you become a member of the body of Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. Now Luke 11 verse 13, Jesus said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So we find here from the lips of our Lord that we are to ask God for the Holy Spirit. Now, we've just read that when we are born again, we receive the Spirit of God. And here we are seeing that we should ask for the Holy Spirit. So how is it and why is it that people who are of the Spirit, people who live by the Spirit, who have the life of the Spirit, who were given the Holy Spirit when they came to Christ, why do we need to ask God for the Holy Spirit when we've already got the Spirit? Well, we find the same thing in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, the first few verses there, Paul clearly states that we are of the Spirit. Christians have the Holy Spirit. And then later in chapter 5, verse 18, he tells them to be filled with the Spirit. So why is it that people who already have the Spirit and live by the Spirit are told to be filled with the Spirit? Shouldn't they already be filled with the Spirit? But they're not filled with the Spirit. Well, I like this quote from Stephen Siemens. For though the Holy Spirit is present in all believers, in some... He is not preeminent, though he is resident in all. In some, he is not precedent. That is why Paul exhorts believers who already have a relationship with the Holy Spirit to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you are of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit, at least correctly. So, one necessitates the other. So if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. But that does not mean that you have necessarily in your spirit surrendered to the Spirit of Christ We can, the Bible says, resist the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. We can, in many respects, be an obstacle and a hindrance to the working of the Spirit in us. And so, we should pray that the Lord would give us the Spirit, that the Spirit would come alive in us, that we would surrender, that we would yield to the Spirit that is in us. We receive power from the Spirit. The the, the Holy Spirit is powerful. I want to 
remind you of something that is so elementary, and yet sometimes I think as soon as we start talking about spiritual gifts and the work of the Spirit, we need to be reminded of this. When we talk about the Spirit, we're talking about God, okay? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we're talking about God here. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. There is a, some sort of mystical, if you will, symbiotic relationship. When we become a spirit and are given the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God indwells us and connects and communicates somehow with our human spirit. We all have a life-giving spirit within us. We have the Spirit of Christ. Those of us who are Christians, we have the Spirit of Christ in us. Two in one, in a sense. Again, whether we fully understand that or not, it doesn't change the reality of the fact. Okay? The Holy Spirit is in us and with us, and we become one with Christ in that relationship. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So we have been baptized, or in other words, we have been immersed or enveloped or overwhelmed or overcome or filled with the Holy Spirit when we came to Christ. Notice this, by the Spirit... We're baptized into one body. It's by the work and the agency of the Spirit that we even are in the body of Christ. And we have been placed in the body through the Spirit. And in the body, remember the Holy Spirit is the life principle of the body of Christ. And so if you're in the body, if you're in Christ, then you are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in you. We are born of water and Spirit, John 3, 5. It is the Spirit that gives life, John 6, 63. The Spirit gives life, Romans 8, 6. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Acts 1.8, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Do these verses make you uncomfortable I'm afraid they do make many Christians uncomfortable. There is supernatural, life-giving energy that we are infused with. There is power from above. There is power from God himself that comes into us. Now, maybe that makes you nervous. I don't know. Maybe to some that's a strange foreign concept. I don't know. But that's why we study the Word of God together. That's why we examine the truths in Scripture. 
That's why we talk about things and discuss things and pray about the Word. We want to understand this, right? And not only do we want to understand it, but here's the key. Many people are keen on understanding it, but they're really scared about experiencing it. You see? Well, I've never experienced that. Okay, well, so what? Does that change what the Word of God says? And we'll talk about that momentarily. In Ephesians 1, verse 6 through 20, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Would you please write this passage down? Ephesians 1, verse 16 through 20, and study it this week. Would you do that? You will be immensely blessed if you will do that. Just slow down, read it slowly, three or four times, carefully focus on each phrase, each word, and ask yourself, what does this passage teach me about what God gives me? God gives the church these things. And it's the same power that raises the dead that raised Jesus himself from the dead. The exact same life-giving power. That's the power of the church. Now, have you ever seen, I suppose most of you who are adults have, been to funerals and you've seen dead bodies? I've seen a lot of them in my life. I cannot even express to you the radical difference between a body that's laying there in a casket, lifeless, with no spirit in it, and that same exact body when it was animated with a spirit. It is un. Believable, almost incredible and unfathomable, the difference between a person, a body that is alive, and one that is dead. Wouldn't you agree? And I'm telling you, there's a whole world of difference between a church that is empowered by the life giving. Spirit of God and one that is dead to the Spirit, one that has quenched the Spirit, one where there is no life apparently existing. We're talking about Spirit empowered gifts, God given gifts. If it messes with your mind, 
than just say God-empowered or the Father, if you're more comfortable with Abba Father, Abba Father-empowered gifts. Hopefully that doesn't frighten us. Just like we've already read from Luke 11, Jesus said a good father loves to give gifts to his children. Right? There's a lot of fathers here in the room. Don't you enjoy giving gifts to your children? Well, God, our Heavenly Father, enjoys giving gifts to His children. And in many respects, we just call those spiritual gifts, right? Gifts of the Spirit, they're through the Spirit, through our rebirth. Gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. And then sometimes we get hung up on the word miraculous. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself why? Do you think perhaps because we are a society that has come out of the Enlightenment, the scientific method, modernism, postmodernism, and we find ourselves just culturally, generationally, culturally turned off by miraculous. I think that's part of it. I really do. I think that's part of it. But what are we afraid of? Number one, the Bible teaches that God is a miracle-working God. Old Testament, New Testament. I mean, do you really, you probably don't, but do you really want me to go through every miracle that God worked in the Bible? No. I mean, it's full of it, right? So, are we going to suppose that God has quit giving these kinds of life-giving gifts God doesn't want to give us any life-giving gifts anymore, or we don't need any of the life-giving gifts of God, and therefore we are completely content or satisfied just to say, God doesn't do that anymore. But where in the Scripture do we read such a concept? Where does the Scripture tell us that God is latent? Where does the Scripture tell us that He is impotent? Where does the Scripture tell us these things? Well, some of you know there are a plethora of books that have been written on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, and that's about the only place people go to to try to come up with that doctrine, right? But no matter what you believe on it, you would have to agree that there are many differing views on what that even means. And so it's not spelled out clearly. And so it's really a spurious interpretation of a text to say, oh, when that which is perfect it comes, then all of these gifts will cease and be gone and be done away with. And yet the very people that say that want to say, well, but yeah, but there are some gifts that God is still giving to the church, and then there's some that he's not. Well, who gets to decide that? 
Just a question I have. And some things, like for example, Colossians 1 verse 11, the Bible says God gives us patience and perseverance. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning of verse 4, in that, or chapter 1 rather, God comforts us. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4, he gives comfort. Have you ever, seriously, have you ever been in a moment in your life where you really felt and believed that God and somehow, some way, comforted you. I would like to think that in the church, in a congregation of Christians, most of you would raise your hand and say, yes, there have been times in my life where I believed, I think, I trust, God gave me comfort. What about direction? What about peace? Have you ever felt peace that you believed was from God? Why are you okay with that and say that's not a miracle? Did it come from above? Yeah. Was it going to happen if God didn't intervene, if he didn't interact? No. How did he do it? Well, I'm not even sure. All I know is I felt a peace come over me. Well, God gave it to you. How does God give it to you? He intervenes. He acts. He works. He does things. Are we going to be a church that doesn't believe God does anything? Seriously? That's a dead church. If you believe God acts, if you believe God gives peace, if you believe he gives joy, if you believe God comforts, if you believe that he can give you patience, if you believe God works, don't get so bent out of shape if God happens to heal somebody, if he makes somebody well, Are you opposed to that? Really? What is a miracle anyway? The Oxford Dictionary says a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by, sign, by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. I like that. You know, I don't put a lot of stock in Oxford Dictionary's definition of biblical terms. However, I just thought this was really interesting. Uh, a surprising and welcome event. And it just kind of blows my mind that many, many churches are, don't really welcome miracles. A miracle is God stepping into the universe, setting aside the normal laws of nature to do a supernatural act. The Bible describes miracles usually, especially in the New Testament, in three terms, signs, wonders, and mighty works. I'm telling you something. When God gives some people patience, it is a mighty work. Although English speakers regularly use miracle to refer to a broad range of wondrous events, 
The biblical concept is limited to those not explainable solely by natural processes, but which require the direct causal agency of a supernatural being, usually God. These occur throughout all major eras of history, but do not appear with greater frequency, but do appear rather, but do appear with greater frequency at key periods of God's self-revelation. Now that, you see, is one of the things that whenever we, a lot of us get together that want to and discuss the work of God some weekend or something, that's something we can talk about right there. Okay? Let's just plan on discussing that. Let's, let's plan on talking about the fact that it seems like there are sometimes, some places, some situations in Scripture where God seems to do more intensified work than in other places. I think that's a fact, but I think it's worth discussing, and it might help us to understand better the way God works. Let's talk about spiritual grace gifts. Each gift is a manifestation or disclosure of the Spirit's activity in their midst. That's from Gordon Fee. God, the rest of these are actually quotes uh, from Scripture. God apportions to each one individually as he wills. God arranged the members as he chose. God has so composed the body. The measure of faith that God has assigned according to the grace given to us. Gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We do not all have the same function in the body. We have different gifts. Each has received a gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now listen. That's something else we need to study and talk about. But just on face value, those scriptures, those passages, those phrases tell us this. God makes that decision, folks. You understand? God gives the gifts. We don't go to the store and get them. God gives them. God decides what gift he's going to give to each person. I've done a lot of work over the years and years gone by of spiritual gift assessments and tests and all kinds of things like that that people have been interested in. And it's amazing to me, really, the number of times that uh, when someone is finished, they will come in and say, well, I have eight spiritual gifts or I have seven spiritual gifts. Well, maybe if you're the next Apostle Paul. But the fact is, I think oftentimes we get lost in thinking about ourselves and what we can do and we stop thinking that God is the one who is the gift giver and he's the one that places people in the body, and he's the one 
that causes these things to happen. Okay? I think that's a very important thing for us to discuss. Gifts are for the common good. One body, many members, all drink of one spirit. Again, these are all references to Scripture. The whole body joined and held together. Each part works properly to make the body grow in every way into Christ. Use gifts to build up the body of Christ, the church. It builds itself up in love, unity of the faith, mature manhood, the fullness of Christ, love relationships. All of these principles, all of these concepts are found within these passages, the teaching about spiritual gifts. So there are parameters, there are explanations, there are purposes, there are things that these gifts are for. And this is the work of God to accomplish His will and His purposes. And that was the problem, at least one of the problems, of the church at Corinth when they got so confused and messed up on spiritual gifts and and twisted and turned God's intentions and put themselves into it rather than accepting what God's work was. Suppose I was a coach of a football team. Tomorrow night, they're going to, well, today I think there's going to be playoff games in the NFL. Uh, Charles is a Kansas City Chief fan. So is Daniel. They're the number one favorite. They're in the first pick to win the Super Bowl. They won the Super Bowl last year. So they're the best team. Their quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, he's really fun to watch if you're a football fan. He really is a fun guy to watch. What would Charles do and Daniel do today if the Chiefs took the field And on first down, I don't know the name of the center, but let's just suppose the center and Patrick Mahomes switch positions. And they're going to do that for the whole game. Charles, how do you think the Chiefs would fare today? Not very good. Not very good. If the quarterback's playing center the whole game and the center is playing quarterback the whole game, it's probably going to mess things up. You see, the team would realize that. What do you think the other players would do? After the first play, I'm sure they would speak out to those guys, and they would, whoa, 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 what are you doing? What's going on here? That's not going to work. And they would want this thing corrected, right? We're not the ones that picks the team. We're not the ones that puts the team in the position. We're not the one that hands out the gifts, and it's not our purpose. It's the purpose of God. And so that's why these things are important for us to understand. This is the objective of God. This is what God is doing. And he knows how to do it. And finally this morning, the scriptures tell us there is a better way. There's a more excellent way. 
I found it very interesting as I was doing this study of all these passages that in every single one of these passages, the writer, whether it was Paul or Peter, the writer talked about love. In the immediate context of every passage on spiritual gifts, bearing with one another in love, let love be genuine, love with brotherly affection. That's in Romans 12. Live in harmony with one another. Keep loving one another earnestly. Gifts without love profit nothing. Pursue love and desire the best gifts. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. Pray for the gift of interpretation. Eager manifestations of the Spirit. Eager for manifestations of the Spirit. I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The point of all of these, you see the common thread in every one of those passages, the common thread is we should desire spiritual gifts. So let's be a church that is really excited about the gifts that God gives us. We're happy with the gifts. And we understand and accept that the gifts that God gives he gives some to some people, different gifts to other people, but for all, he does it in a way that is best for the body of Christ. We have to trust God, the gift giver. And if we do, that's how the church grows. That's how love grows. Let all things be done for building up. I want you to think about what you do personally in the body of Christ. The spiritual gift thing, in all these passages, it's not, these are not exhaustive lists. In fact, you can go through the New Testament and you can add to the list that we have in those four passages. There are many, many things. And really, the point is not for us to identify exactly the number of spiritual gifts that God makes available. That's not the point. The point is the Spirit gives gifts. And so whatever they are, whatever the gifts are, one thing's for certain, God gave them to us so that the church is built up. So whatever you do, just to use those three words at the beginning, whatever gifts, whatever service or ministries, whatever activities or workings that you do in the context of the church, is it building up the body of Christ? Whatever you do, is it for the glory of God and is it for the well-being of his church? Edification, encouragement, consolation. Each has received a gift, use it. Use it to serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for our time spent together today. We thank you that you are a generous Father 
and that you give an abundance of gifts to your children and you do so with a wisdom and insight and knowledge that we just don't have. We accept your gifts. We pray that we are open to receive your gifts. We pray that um, we won't act in such ways as like, oh, no, no, I can't receive that. I can't accept that. We do that sometimes when people try to give us gifts, and sometimes I, I fear we do that when you give us gifts. Help us to be aware of what your intent, what your will is for the church. And we pray, Father, that every one of us will be receptive, submissive to your will, Help this church to learn more and more about spiritual gifts. Help all of us, Father. Uh, if you look at the history of many of us, Father, we, we're novices in this, and we need your instruction. We need your wisdom. We need your help. We need you to show us the way, and we pray that we will all trust you, we'll depend on you, and that this church can grow to the fullness of Christ that it will be filled with your love and that we can see, that we can acknowledge, we can accept, we can affirm and confirm the gifts of everyone in this body of believers. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.